Tonight, as we continue our study of Isaiah, we're moving into chapter 61 of Isaiah, chapter 61. And the theme of Isaiah 61 is the theme of God's good news for his people. And the chapter opens with a relatively familiar passage of scripture because it's a passage that Christ himself quotes in the Gospels. And so this is a passage that focuses on God's goodness to his people, and it specifically revolves around the person of the anointed one that we've seen before in the book of Isaiah. And so in this section, we're going to see God appointing a, an, an anointed one that is going to be led by the Spirit who is going to accomplish God's purposes. And as an outflow of that work of the anointed one, God's people are going to be restored. The, the Zion, city of Jerusalem, is going to be rebuilt. And Israel is going to be able to uh, enjoy praise of God in, in his blessings. Tonight, as we look at the first part of Isaiah 61, we're going to see God's spirit-led anointed one described in the first three verses. God's spirit-led anointed one. And in the opening verses the anointed one himself is speaking and he is uh, revealing what God has appointed him to do as God's anointed one. And in verse one, we see him describe his source of strength, which is namely the Holy spirit of God. He says in verse one, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And we'll go on and focus on the rest of the verse in just a moment. But I just want us to focus on that first part where it says that the anointed one has the blessing of the Holy Spirit on him. And we see that fulfilled in Christ, don't we? When uh, at a very specific moment in Christ's ministry, when we see Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, we hear a voice from heaven saying, behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, listen to him, listen to his words. And then John also describes seeing uh, the Holy Spirit descending out of heaven like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. And so we associate that with the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' ministry as he begins his public declaration of the good news that's described here in Isaiah 61. And so we see Jesus, the son of God and God, the Holy spirit working in harmony as Jesus fulfills his mission on earth. And that's described here 700 years in advance by the prophet Isaiah. And so he is endued with power from the Holy spirit. In fact, the very idea of anointing, uh, runs throughout the whole New Testament and is closely associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not only on Jesus, but also on his people. Uh, in John, as well as in the letters of John, First John, for example, uh, John describes the anointing that we have all received. And that most certainly is in reference to the Holy Spirit that we've been blessed with as the children of God. But here, this is the anointed one of God saying that he has God's spirit to, to strengthen him and to encourage him, to help him in his ministry. And then we see his task and his ultimate purpose described in the rest of verse 1 and then on through verse number 3. 
the anointed one's task and ultimate purpose. And in these verses, he describes really his mission, what he has been sent by God to accomplish. And one of those things is to proclaim good news. That, that phrase there, good news, is in the Greek where we get our word gospel from. Yuan uh, Galizo is the declaration of the good news, the, the gospel. And so here Isaiah is saying that God's anointed one is going to be one who proclaims. He's a preacher. He's a prophet, a proclaimer. And that's fulfilled in the prophetic office of Christ, isn't it? That, that Christ is indeed a prophet. And he came declaring the good news of God, specifically to those who were afflicted, to those who were poor, to those who were downtrodden. He says God has sent him to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. You see all the things that are in common there in verse number one is people who are in hardship, people who are poor, people who are brokenhearted, people who are imprisoned, people who are in darkness. And just like Jesus said in his ministry, that God has sent him as a physician to heal those who are sick. He came to, to take those who were weak, those who were weary, and to give them strength and to give them grace. And it's not just that God calls the poor or the afflicted, but God does have a particular heart of concern for the poor and the afflicted, doesn't he, throughout Scripture. We see in the Old Testament uh, many Old Testament laws that are specifically directed toward the poor and to foreigners, those who were the more vulnerable in society, God's people were to watch out for them. And as they were gleaning their fields, they were supposed to leave food behind for the poor. Uh, They were supposed to, every seven years, uh, let slaves go free, cancel debts. And so there was a, a particular concern in the law for the poor. We see in the Psalms, many of the Psalms talk about God having his eye of concern on the poor and that he defends them and watches out for them. Why is that? You ever, you ever thought about why that is that God has a particular focus? His heart is on the poor. Uh, one of the things that I came across in studying for this lesson tonight is a list of 10 reasons, 10 uh, things that the poor uh, have that, that is why God pays special attention to them. And I drew this from Brian Baer's commentary on Isaiah. But he says these are things that, that are particular to the poor that uh, may not necessarily be the case for everyone else. One, he says, the poor know that they are in urgent need of redemption. The poor know that they are in urgent need of redemption. He says, secondly, the poor know not only their dependence on God and on other people of wealth, but also their interdependence with one another. In other words, the poor recognize that they're not self-sufficient, that they're dependent on God and on other people. The poor rest their security not on things, but on people. They don't rest their security on things because they don't have things on which to base their security. He says, fourthly, the poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance and no exaggerated need of privacy. They're, they're, they're not proud. They, they are, are acknowledging of the fact that they are lowly. 
Uh, fifth, the poor expect little from competition and much from cooperation. In other words, they're not all about trying to one-up someone else. They're about working together just to survive. Sixthly, he says the poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. They know what a true need is, don't they? Seventh, he says the poor can wait because they have acquired a kind kind of dogged patience born of acknowledged dependence. They've, uh, because of their poverty, they've learned how to wait and how to be patient and how to endure. He says, eighth, the fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering and want. So their fears are more real fears because they know what is true necessity and what is true difficulty. Number nine, he says, when the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news and not like a threat or a scolding. So they acknowledge that they're at the bottom and that they're in need of redemption. So when they hear the gospel, it sounds like good news to them. 10, he says, the poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they have so little to lose and are ready for anything. Basically, they're, they've been stripped of everything that this world has to offer, which makes them very open to the strength and the grace that God provides. It's, in other words, sometimes God brings people low in order so that he can lift them up. He, he causes them to go through difficulties. He brings them to the end of themselves. They see that they have nothing of their own strength or ability to, to do what they need done. So they depend on God. And, and that's a heart that's open to be lifted up by the gospel of grace. And so often people with material things and who are wealthy place more confidence in, this, in themselves, in their possessions, in their strengths, in their talents. And that's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven because they're so self-dependent and they think they can handle things on their own. But a poor person recognizes he's dependent and in need of redemption. And so oftentimes God's uh, love and care and grace goes to those who are in poverty. Not that he doesn't and can't save those who are wealthy. He does. But it seems like often his grace works counter to human expectations, doesn't it? Not many mighty were called, not many noble, not many wise, not many rich in this world. But the foolish things of the world, God called. That's where his grace comes. And so here's the anointed one of God coming to declare good news to the poor and and freedom for those who are captives. It's going to be part of his ministry. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And you can see there the, the double-sided um, message of the good news. There is on the one side of the message, there's blessing for those whom God shows favor and grace to. But there's vengeance and there's justice for the enemies of God. That's, that's the two-sided aspect of, of when God comes to bring salvation. It, it often comes with both salvation and judgment on two sides of the same coin. And he, the anointed one of God says, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display 
of his splendor. And I'll just think about the context that Isaiah is writing this into. People who have been defeated. People who have been in captivity, right? They've been in captivity in Babylon as exiles. They've been in darkness. They've been in poverty. And here the anointed one of God is saying, I've come to preach good news and release and joy and blessing from God. And they will shout with joy and praise and they will be oaks of righteousness planted by God, which I think is an intentional reference back to what God said that he was going to do in judgment on Zion. He was going to chop down the trees in judgment, but he was going to leave branches, right? He's going to leave a stump out of which it would regrow. And here Isaiah is referring to that saying after exile, there are going to be oaks, trees of righteousness planted by God back in his holy land. So it's a message of good news to those who were downtrodden, brokenhearted. And so who is this anointed one? What's the identity of this anointed one? I think there can be no question that it's Jesus. Jesus, he's the anointed one. In fact, we have clear uh, reference back to this passage by Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 14, this is right after the, uh, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And Luke, chapter 4, talks about him coming back to his hometown in Galilee. And it says he returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit. Interesting, isn't it? That he's about to read from Isaiah that said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And Luke says he came back in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he reads this passage and he says, that's me. I'm here. This anointed one of God that Isaiah was talking about, he's come and I'm here. It was a specific call to faith, wasn't it? For them to believe and to trust in him as the anointed one of God. Of course, we know from the Gospels that Jesus met with a lot of resistance in Nazareth, didn't he? He, he came to his own and his own received him not. His own brothers and sisters did not recognize him as for who he was. But he called on them to trust in him because he was this anointed one of God. And so he is the one that would come and bring good news to God's people. And then as we move on into Isaiah chapter 61, we see a specific reference to the cities of Israel being rebuilt. Earlier in Isaiah, he had described Israel's glorious return as its sons and daughters came from everywhere, from exile, from the north, south, east, west to come back home. And now he's going to describe the rebuilt cities, gloriously rebuilt cities that they would occupy as they returned home. 
And so we see in verse 4, the ruins rebuilt. The ruins rebuilt. When they left Jerusalem, they left it in shambles because the Babylonians had destroyed it. They destroyed it, knocked down the buildings, set it on fire. There was nothing left of the walls. There was nothing left of the temple of God, their holy sanctuary. It was ruins. So you can imagine the sight when they got back home and that's what they saw. This is God's holy city. And here it is lying just rubble, stone, bricks. But here Isaiah is saying it's going to be rebuilt and it's going to be glorious. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And he, he's obviously that's going to start in Jerusalem, right? But then it's going to move outward from there into uh, Judah and Galilee. So they're going to rebuild rest- restoration. We're going to see uh, people, not only the Jews, but even others blessed because of what the Lord is doing there. Foreigners are going to be employed in the rebuilding of the cities. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and your vineyards. In other words, what Isaiah is describing is a complete reversal of their current situation in exile. Because what are they doing in exile? They're taking care of someone else's stuff. They're the servants. They're the ones in exile. But in Isaiah describing the the restoration, the turnaround of events of God's blessing on them when they come home, now they're going to have others serving them and doing their work. The people are going to be sanctified. Sanctified. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that Isaiah gives this broad description to all the people of God as they come home that they will be priests. Because weren't there supposed to be a set group of Levites who were priests? Well, indeed, that's true. God had set apart the Levites and specifically the family of Aaron to be priests in Israel. But do you remember his original intention for the people of God in Exodus? You can read this in Exodus 19. When he called them to Mount Sinai, he said, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. In other words, his design for Israel as his covenant people would that, was that they would be the mediators of God to the world. And that in a sense, all, they would all be priests. And here that's how Isaiah is referring to them. They will all be priests and ministers of the Lord. And they will be blessed because instead of their wealth being granted to the nations, now the nation's wealth will be flowing back to them. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. And, and the, the idea here is really kind of a, a metaphor of uh, like the firstborn receiving a double portion of the inheritance and of what God had done for his people doing that and even more for them when they come back home. 
And the covenant will be realized. The covenant will be realized. Verse 8, he says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. This everlasting covenant that he's describing is most likely the new covenant. It is, and it's what we've talked about before in Isaiah, that God is not just interested in bringing back a group of people and moving them from point A to point B. Of, of taking a group of people and just geographically changing their status from Babylon to Jerusalem. He's also interested in creating a holy people, a people who are transformed spiritually. And we can read about that new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel and other places where God says, I'm going to put my spirit in them. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. They're all going to know me. They're all going to be transformed from the inside out and they will be righteous people. That was God's intention for his people coming home. And that, that fulfillment, that unfolding of the new covenant is still ongoing. It is, it's ongoing because Christ ratified it with his own blood. We are now beneficiaries of the new covenant. But the full, final fulfillment, all of the aspects of the new covenant, including peace, and being in the presence of God, all of that is still ultimately to come. And so it is an unfolding new covenant. But God says, I'm making this covenant with you. Because he wants them to be a holy people. And then the last two verses end with really praise, exaltation of Israel rejoicing in their God for what he has accomplished in them. And so we see in verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Uh, is this the anointed one speaking? It could be. It could be Isaiah speaking. It could be just kind of a generic first person of anyone who is a child of God and what their voice will say in response to these blessings of the Lord. Rejoicing greatly in God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of the gospel? We see that, that same imagery in Zechariah 3 where God takes a sinful, um, tarnished, um, high priest Joshua coming out of exile. And Zechariah 3 says that God strips off of him his filthy clothes of sin and unrighteousness. And God places on him clean, white linen robes of righteousness. So that language is found in Zechariah 3, but it's also picked up in the New Testament, isn't it? That, that we are clothed with the righteousness of God. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We see this same language in Revelation where it talks about God's saints being clothed in white raiment and white linen. And it's a picture of our salvation, our redemption, that even though we haven't earned it, even though we don't deserve it, we are 
clothed, we are placed in the righteousness of God. And we are seen as that, as righteous, as declared holy and pure before God. And it's all because he does it for us. He places us in this status. What a blessing it is to be able to have this standing before God and to be treated like this. Reminds me of the prodigal son coming home. Remember how the father responded to the prodigal son coming home? He said, go kill the fatted calf, put on him a new robe, put new sandals on his feet, give him a new ring. That's the imagery here too, of of people being welcomed to the home of God. Robes of righteousness, uh, jewels on their head. Verse 11, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Reminds us that this is ultimately a work of God, isn't it? It's a work of God. And, and everything that Isaiah has been describing here in Isaiah 61, the work of the anointed one, his mission, his proclamation of good news, God's restoration of his people and rebuilding the cities, uh, causing the wealth of the nations to come home to Jerusalem. This is all God's work. This is all his doing. He is, in essence, taking a piece of ground and he is retilling the ground and he's replanting his people on this plot of ground in Zion. And he's going to make it grow. He's going to make it spring up. And the, the initial fulfillment of that is when the people of Israel come back home to Jerusalem and they rebuild the walls, and they rebuild the temple. And Jesus comes and blesses those walls and blesses that temple with his presence. But ultimately, it's going to be fulfilled in the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride, right? Prepared for her husband in jewels and in glorious raiment. It's all the work of God. And he is doing it by his grace, by his power, and for his glory. And in verse 10, the response of God's people simply is this. I delight in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. That's how we should respond as well to what God has done for us.